Well, we are looking at uh, Amos chapter 3. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, um, our practice here, generally speaking, is to um, camp out in a book of the Bible or a particular section of the Bible and just slowly make our way through um, that book or that section of the Bible um, and unpacking it week by week and, and uh, examining what it says, explaining what it says, and, and seeing uh, how it applies to our lives today as God's people. And that's what we're doing right now in the book of Amos, the, the minor prophet in the Old Testament. And um, we are looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 this morning. Um, and if Amos is a, a kind of series of sermons that Amos preached um, in Israel at his time, then, uh, then what we find here is the beginning of a new sermon. Um, and we'll be given notice that a new sermon is starting over the next several chapters uh, when Amos begins uh, a new sermon by using this phrase, hear this word, hear this word. Uh, we see this at the beginning of chapters four and five, signifying there's a new sermon in chapter four, a new sermon in chapter five. And that's how our text begins this morning in chapter three with Amos preaching a sermon wherein he is pleading with God's presumptuous people to listen to his message. And so let's, uh, let's read Amos chapter 3, if you'd like to stand with me, for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Um, stand out of respect, and let's listen with reverence and with joy, because this is the word of our God. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth, on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt. And say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. On that day, I will punish Israel for her transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we, we give you thanks for 
your word with its, its promises that are to be trusted, its statements which are to be believed, its commands that are to be obeyed, and its warnings, even its warnings that are to be heeded. And we pray that as we read here the warnings in Amos chapter 3, that you would give us much grace to be awakened more and more into repentance, to be grown deeper and deeper in repentance, to heed your word here and to not be a presumptuous people, but to be a trusting and repentant people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, um, one of the most stunning chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is when the Beaver family is explaining to the Pavinzi children who Aslan is. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is, of course, the great lion who is the, the rightful king and, and the rightful savior of Narnia. And the Pavinzi children, being largely kind of uninitiated to the things of, of Narnia and its king, were, were quite taken aback at this news, that the, the king is, is this lion figure. And uh, so Susan Pavinzi, she's kind of trepidatiously asking questions about uh, what, the, what the deal is here about this, this Aslan character. And she says to Mr. Beaver, you know, are, are we going to see him? To which Mr. Mr. Beaver replies to her, he says, yes, that's why, you know, I've brought you here. I'm going to take you to Aslan. You're supposed to meet Aslan. And so Lucy, confused, she asks him, still, still just not sure uh, who this Aslan figure is, just not comprehending that he's a lion. She says, is he, is he a man? Mr. Beaver then replied to her, Haslin, a man? It's ridiculous. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. At this time, Mrs. Beaver chimes in, saying, That you will, dearie, and no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, Lucy responded. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? He isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, this morning as we look at Amos 3, we see, we come to see that the Israelites had falsely presumed that their Lord and their God was safe and that they were therefore safe in their sin. But this was a mistake. Instead, what they find and what we find here is that the Lord is actually like a roaring lion about to pounce on Israel as his prey. He's not safe. And because they were sinning grievously before him and committing gross social injustices before him, they were not safe. And if we as his people live in ways that displease him, we're not safe either. The big idea that we find here is that God's people should abandon their foolish presumptions and pay attention to the warnings of his word. We'll unpack that by looking at a, a presumptuous people a plea to pay attention in a pending disaster. And first we see in verses 1 and 2, a, a presumptuous people 
So Amos, uh, Amos's new sermon begins by saying this, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. And right away, you know, this ought to be a frightening word to the Israelites. God is against you. He's speaking a word against you. Of course, if, if you know uh, Paul's writing in Romans 8, you know that, that it's a glorious thing for God to be for you. And that if God is for you, nothing can be against you. It doesn't matter who's against you if God is for you. But the same is true and equally true. If God is against you, it doesn't matter who's for you. You're in deep trouble. However, the Israelites would not have readily accepted such pronouncement. They wouldn't have readily received. This is not a message that they would have readily received here. Because you see, as as Amos goes on to say in verse 1, that they were the family, the nation that God had brought out of the land of Egypt. As he says in verse 2, he says, you only have I known out of all the families of the earth. That, that, that phrase there, you only have I known, that has deep covenantal uh, uh, realities in it. They were God's special covenant people. They were the object of God's redemption. They were the people that he chose out of all the nations of the earth to receive his redemption, his word, his grace. They, were, they had a special covenant relationship with him as his special people. And yet they'd misunderstood what this meant for them completely. They, they thought, they presumed that their special relationship with the Lord meant immunity from their sins no matter what. What they missed is that their special relationship with the Lord actually meant responsibility. It meant that they were the, the one people the, the, the one community on the earth chosen and set apart to represent Yahweh to all the nations of the earth. They were to be an embassy of heaven in the midst of this earth. And this was supposed to be evident in the way that they, they worshipped him as the one true God. This was supposed to be evident in their, in their personal morality. This was supposed to be evident in the way that they cared for the poor and the marginalized. And yet what had they done? They worshiped idols. They carried on in, in blatant immorality. They, they crushed the poor and the marginalized into the dust of the earth. And so God was against them. And he says to them here in verse 2, Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. And we're not immune to this kind of presumption today, are we? That's God's covenant people. We, we, we of course, we've, we've seen a greater exodus and a greater redemption than Israel had seen and experienced. Our, our redemption has been redemption from uh, the uh, slavery to sin and the finality of death. Our, our exodus has been for us a, 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 an exodus from slavery to sin and the finality of death. Christ, our Lord, he's defeated for us a foe far greater than Pharaoh in Egypt. He has defeated Satan, sin, and death for us. And yet how often do we, like Israel, presume upon God's grace? How often do we, like Israel, deceive ourselves into thinking that Christ's grace and forgiveness and favor exempts us from following him? How often do we excuse our sin, saying, well, well, grace abounds all the more, so let's sin all the more. I remember a while back, me and one of the leaders of our church here, we were at a, a kind of Christian outreach event here in East Dayton. It was a sort of concert for, for folks in the neighborhood, and and we ended up uh, meeting uh, one young man there who'd obviously done some hard living and he was telling us just what the, the last several days looked like for him. And 
Um, they were pretty rough. And so a group of us were engaging in conversation with them. We got to pray with him and, and talk with him about Christ for a bit. But uh, as we were talking with him, he said something very interesting. We were, as we were discussing his sin, he sort of, he sort of brushed it off saying, well, you know, I've, I've made Jesus my Savior. I just haven't made him my Lord yet. I don't know if that language uh, is, is, sounds familiar to you, but several years ago in, Christian, in the Christian uh, community, there was a, uh, a, a conversation that's sometimes called the Lordship Controversy and uh, became prominent amongst many Christians to say that someone can make Jesus their Savior but not their Lord. They can be forgiven of their sin. They can have assurance of their salvation. They can be assured that they're going to heaven when they die and that the, the final judgment will work out favorably for them. But they don't need to repent of sin. They don't need to, to seek to put their sin to death. They don't need to actually follow Christ. In other words, they can get all of the benefits without any of their responsibility. But my friends, that is a lie from the fiery pits of hell. You, you don't make Jesus anything. He is Savior, he is Lord, and he can't be divided. And if you put your trust in him and enter into a relationship with him, you get him and all that he is. And so to profess Christ and presume upon his forgiveness without following him is merely to toy around with Christianity and to make a mockery of the name of Christ. Because you see, he didn't just die on Golgotha and rise for, for you to be freed from the consequences of your sin. He died and rose also to put it to death. He didn't just die and rise to free you from the guilt of your sin. He died and rose also for you to be freed from sin's power. He, he redeemed us and he purchased us and he brought us into this special relationship with him to give us the benefits of his redemption, yes. But also to give us this special responsibility of following him and representing him as the embassy of his heavenly kingdom here on earth. He chose us out of all the families of the earth to give us this special responsibility to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. As J. Alec Mateer so wonderfully put it, he said this, he said, special privileges, special obligations. Special grace, special holiness. Special revelation, special scrutiny, special love, special responsiveness. The church of God cannot ever escape the perils of its uniqueness. Now how hard it is to, to hear and to listen to such a message. Undoubtedly, the, the Israelites, as we see here, they objected. They objected to, to Amos' message. And so, in this next section here, Amos' sermon, he, he pleads with the Israelites to pay attention. Look at verses three and eight here at a plea to pay attention. And, and here, Amos is, is sort of offering a, a kind of defense of his ministry and his message. You see, he's, he's trying to get the Israelites to, to listen to him. But he, he does so in a, in a kind of interesting way. He takes a series of questions to which the answers are, are obvious because of the, the relationship between a cause and its effect. And then he says that in the same way, his message and his preaching is the effect which is caused by the call of God. And so the Israelites should pay attention. He begins by saying in verse three, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? 
Well, the answer is obvious. No, of, of course not. People only come together for a meeting if they previously scheduled a time to get together and to walk together. And likewise, he says in verse four, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out in his den if he's taken nothing? Again, the answers are, are obvious. When a lion is hunting, it's silent so that it might find a prey. It lowers the defenses of, of everything around it and it's, it's silent uh, until it's about to pounce on its prey and then right before it does, it roars to kind of freeze its, its, its prey in fear so that it's, it sits still while the lion pounces. So a lion only roars when it's about to pounce on its prey. Likewise, a young lion in a den only roars if it's caught its prey and it's about to consume it. He goes on in verse 5. He says, does a bird fall on the snare on the earth when there's no trap for it? Of course not. A bird only is, is only trapped in a snare which has been set to trap the bird. And likewise, he says, does a snare spring up from the ground when it's taken nothing? Of course not. A, a, a snare trap only springs if it's caught something. Verse 6 then is, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? You know, in those days, uh, when uh, an invading army was approaching a city, they would sound the trumpet. It'd be similar to like a, a tornado siren in, in our day. When a tornado siren goes off, you know it's about to happen. You know a tornado's coming, so you're fearful. Well, in the same way, when a trumpet is, about to, is being blown in the city, the, the people are afraid because they know an approaching army is coming, an invading army is coming to their city. And then the last of Amos' series of questions here, he, does, he says, uh, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Again, the, the obvious answer is no. The Lord is absolutely sovereign over everything that happens. He controls everything from the planets whirling above us to every speck of dust floating among us. He controls everything. And so if disaster comes upon a city, it's because the Lord planned or permitted it to happen. And so Amos says, in the, in the same way, the message I'm proclaiming to you, Israel, has come because the Lord has showed it to me. It says in, in verse 7 and 8, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The Lord has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? In other words, Amos is saying, Israel, you need to pay attention. The message I'm proclaiming to you is the roar of the lion before he pounces. This is the roar of the lion before he consumes his prey in the den. Amos' warnings are, are God's warnings. His words are God's words. And again here, Amos, is, he's seeking to stir them up out of their complacency and to, to stir them up to repentance, to, to, to cause them to flee from their presumptions. He's trying to stir them up to repentance. He's, he's been sent to tell them of this, this coming disaster. He's been sent to tell them about it so that they might take corrective action and reverse the injustices that they've been committing. Amos' preaching is God's forewarning for them. And this is what John Calvin points out in his commentary. Johnny C., he, he writes about uh, Amos. He points out the differences uh, between the way God deals with his people and the way he deals with the, the nations that Amos, is, Amos was preaching about in chapters 1 and 2. And he says this, he says, Amos here intimates that God did not deal with his chosen people as he did with the heathen nations. For these often found God unexpectedly displeased with them, and had no time to reflect that they might repent. Much more, kind, much more kindly and mercifully has God acted, says Amos, with his people. For, for God was unwilling to suddenly overwhelm them or to surprise them, but he's warned them by his prophets. His words 
may be unpleasant words. They're warnings. They're, they're hard words to hear. But they're necessary so that the people of God might have opportunity to repent. Like loving parents warn and rebuke their children when they fall into sin and destructive behavior. So the Lord warns and rebukes his people that they might turn from sin and turn to him and receive the joy in life that he alone gives. Of course, again, I I just wonder if maybe there's some of us present who need to hear and heed the warnings of God, who need to hear God's warnings this morning. Perhaps you're a a, a professing follower of Christ. Maybe maybe you're a member in good standing of our church, but like the Israelites here, you've, you've bought into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. He he described it, he said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. And then here's the rub. He says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Might that describe the kind of Christianity that some of us have bought into? A kind of Christianity that costs nothing. A kind of Christianity that requires no sacrifice, no warring against sin, no cross to bear. A kind of Christianity that claims all of the benefits of Christ's redemption without any of the responsibilities of repentance. If that, if that describes us, Amos 3 may very well be a warning for us this morning. To pay attention, run away from sin, run away from cheap grace, and run to Christ. There's still time. If you don't, though, in his mercy, he may very well judge you and expose you and send disaster upon you. As, as Hebrews twelve six says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. In his mercy, if his people persist in sin, the Lord sends his judgment upon his people. And it's to that judgment that we turn next in verses 9 to 15. And here Amos prophesies about a pending disaster in Israel. Begins this next section by calling two pagan nations, Israel's enemies, to come and witness Israel's social injustice. According to the, the legal code in the Mosaic law, in order to condemn someone in a trial, there had to be two or three witnesses. And by calling these two pagan nations as witnesses, the Lord is mocking the Israelites. And he's saying that these pagan nations are morally superior to his own people. He calls the Philistines and the Egyptians, saying, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod. Ashdod was a city in Philistia. And the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Then he goes on to pronounce this pending judgment which will devastate Israel's military, will devastate their houses of worship, will devastate their opulent homes. All of which Israel presumed were signs of the Lord's blessing and favor upon them. They they looked at their strong military. They looked at their, their houses of worship. They looked at their wealth and they thought those are signs. Those are, are sureties to us that God is for us, that He's He's with us, and that we have His favor and His blessing. 
the Lord says here, these signs of the, uh, these supposed signs of the Lord's blessing and favor were gonna come to nothing. He says, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your stronghold shall be plundered. So their strong military will be defeated. And next he says that their houses of worship will be destroyed. Skip ahead to, to verse 13 here. He says, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on that day I will punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. So Bethel was where Israel's house of worship was and their, their uh, altars there were where they offered their sacrifices and the horns of the altar were, were uh, uh, supposed to be a sign of the Lord's uh, strength and the, a sign of his protection over Israel. But these are going to be destroyed, he says. And then next, they're ornate and opulent houses. And in verse 15, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. They have winter homes and summer homes. And, and these houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. We know as we discussed last week, Assyria, Assyria, the nation of Assyria, would indeed invade just a couple of decades later and utterly decimate Israel and defeat their army and, de and destroy their houses of worship and lay waste to their beautiful homes. However, the Lord says here that Israel herself would not be utterly destroyed. Looking back up at verse 12 here, you see Amos write this. He says, thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. In other words, just as a lion attacks and consumes a sheep, and what you find left over is maybe a couple of limbs or a piece of an ear, so Yahweh is going to consume Israel. Yahweh the lion is going to consume Israel. But even with all the destruction and devastation, there will be something left of her. Out of the fires of the Lord's judgment, a, a remnant will emerge, however slight, however small it might be. The images portrayed here are frightening. But what the Apostle Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 applies here in Amos 3, he said, now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. We do well to ask ourselves then what we ought to learn from, from this example of the Israelites and their sin and their social injustice and their presumptions and the Lord's judgment upon them. One thing that seems fairly obvious that we ought to ask ourselves is, is what kind of things are we, are we looking to to make us feel safe and secure? What, what kinds of things are we looking to as signs of his favor that are, are presumptuous, falsely presuming upon his favor? For Israel, their military made them feel secure. Their riches made them feel secure. Their, their religious observances made them feel secure. And what about us? No, no doubt, these verses completely oppose and undermine any notion of the prosperity gospel. The belief that God shows his special favor and grace upon his covenant people by showering them with health and wealth and comfort and ease. They were rich and they saw their riches as a sign of God's favor, but the Lord, the Lord was utterly against them. Thus those 
prosperity preachers who, who claim that health, wealth, and, and long life is a sign of God's favor is a sham. It's a sham. In fact, some of the most evil men in the earth possess great wealth and God is utterly against them. He despises them. And so we should never confuse worldly success with God's favor. And, and you know, while most of us would probably heartily condemn the, the blatant heresy of the prosperity gospel, I, could it be possible that some of us may have bought into a softer version of that sort of prosperity gospel? We may not claim that the, the Lord's salvation is found in health and wealth and comfort and ease. Is it possible that we feel in our heart of hearts that if we follow Christ, that if we give him lip service, if we keep our noses clean, that he kind of owes us lives of relative ease and comfort? There's one way I've noticed that kind of belief showing up in my life is when I do meet with hardship or discomfort. And I think that the Lord has, has not dealt with me fairly. Thoughts cross my mind in dialogue with the Lord. Lord, this is not fair. Why is this happening? As if something strange were happening. And really, such a mindset is so easy for us, prosperous and comfortable Americans, isn't it? It's, it's, it's so how When we experience a certain level of ease and prosperity, how quickly we transition into thinking, into a, into a state of mind wherein we think that, that we're owed, it's something we're owed, that, that we think that abundance is a right, that we've earned it, that it's part of the deal of being God's child. But it's not. We follow a Christ. We follow a Christ who's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We follow a Christ who journeyed through Israel without a place to rest his head. We followed a Christ who was betrayed and tortured and crucified and killed and who told us to expect the same if we follow him. Because of that, we need to see, Christian, wealth, comfort, ease, health, that's not the norm of the Christian life. That's an exception. And, and, and on the other hand, we, we should also recognize that suffering, hardship, discomfort is not an exception to the Christian life. It's not the norm of the Christian life, rather. It's the exception. We should not look to these things as our security or as infallible signs of God's favor. We should never put much stock in temporal treasures. They're fleeting and they're not signs of God's special favor. In fact, suffering is probably a better indicator that you're in God's will than comfort or ease. Likewise, here, the, the example of Israel teaches us not to look to our religious observances for our security. As we'll see in the next chapter of Amos, the Israelites were, were faithful in offering sacrifices. They, were, they gave free will offerings every three days, it says, they attended all the religious events that they ought to have attended. They frequented their houses of worship with great regularity, with far more regularity than we do. They were faithful in their religious observances. But the pronouncement of the Lord here in Amos 3 shows us what he thought of that. He's going to destroy those altars on which they sacrificed and brought their offerings. He's going to destroy their houses of worship. And, and this teaches us a very important lesson today that religious observance is no substitute for repentance. 
Religious observance is no substitute for repentance. Religious observance without repentance is bogus to God. He despises it. It stinks to him. It's abhorrent to him. If God's people carry on in disobedience, if we perpetuate injustice or are complacent in the face of injustice, the Lord despises our worship. He says as much in in chapter 5 of Amos, verse 21. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Your church services stink to high heaven. Their worship may very well have been orthodox in some ways. May very well have been something close to what the Lord prescribed in his word. But it stunk to the Lord with hypocrisy. It was empty. And likewise, you may be a baptized member in good standing of our church or of another church. You may come Sunday in or Sunday out. You may say the prayers and sing the songs. You may receive the Lord's Supper. You may give faithfully and generously. And so you should. Those are things, those are matters of obedience. You ought to do those things. You're supposed to do so, but don't presume that that is a substitute for repentance. Back to 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says of the Israelites in verses 1 to 5 there. He says, Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. He's applying that very same reality to the Corinthians and and it applies to us as well. In other words, the Israelites were baptized. They were communing members of God's holy church. They received the Lord's Supper. But God was against them because they were presumptuous rather than repentant. They did not heed the warnings of his word. What about us? Make no mistake God is not mocked. Religious observance is no substitute for repentance. We as God's people would do well to abandon any of our foolish presumptions and pay attention to the warnings of his word. As people privileged to know God, to possess his word, much is expected of us. There is a responsibility on our part to represent him. We have a holy responsibility to represent the Lord as an embassy of heaven here on this earth. This ought to be evident in the way that we carry ourselves and in the ways that we care for the poor and the marginalized and in the, in the way that we behave before a watching world. And so may we never presume upon the Lord's kindness, never look to earthly treasures for our security and never substitute religion for repentance. The lion has roared. We heed his voice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the warnings of your word. And especially as we are about to approach the Lord's Supper. And we see this as a time where we, wherein we draw near to you, but we know 
that coming presumptuous, presumptuously before you is abhorrent to you. And so we pray that you would grant us true belief and true repentance. Help us to run away from our sin and to run to Christ, to truly run to Christ and to seek to live faithfully before him, not presuming upon your kindness, but receiving your kindness and also taking upon the responsibility of representing you. Help us to be a truly repentant people this morning and in the week to come, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.